1: Cybersecurity and ransomware are top-of-mind issues for finance professionals, and they were also popular topics at this year's South by Southwest Conference, held last month in Austin, Texas. At a South by conference panel, Kevin Lynch, the CEO of cybersecurity firm Optive, noted that there are major opportunities for public and private sector leaders to battle cyber threats through collective defense. In this episode, we're bringing in Optiv VP and former assistant director of the FBI, James Turgill, to discuss cyber threats from Russia, a holistic approach to managing attack surfaces, and how, as Lynch described on the stage at South By, one act of collaboration can have an exponential effect on combating cyber threats. All that and more on this episode of Breaking Banks. My name is Amber Bucher, your host with Breaking Banks, and I'm super excited to be joined today by James Turgil. So James is has a really interesting background that I can't wait to dig into for you guys. He used to be with the FBI. And today, James is the vice president at Optive Inc. James, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Amber.
1: Of course. Thank you so much for coming on. We're super excited to dig into the very confusing and scary world of cybersecurity with you as our guide. Um, But first, I would love to talk a little bit about your background and just kind of set the scene for your expertise. So you started out as a, a litigation partner in private practice as an attorney. Is that right?
0: I did. Absolutely. So I have uh, actually two law degrees. I have a, a Juris Doctor degree from uh, Western Michigan University Law School, and then I have a Master's of Law from Georgetown University Law Center in Corporations and Securities Regulations. So I practiced law for a number of years before I joined the FBI.
1: Awesome. Uh, I am a recovering lawyer, so I am (laughs) always admire people that um, went through all of that um, work and and actually practiced for a significant amount of time. It is not lost on me how difficult that is, um, especially in the areas that you were working in. I'm curious how that stacked up uh, with the FBI and what it was like transitioning from that into a role as special agent in charge in Phoenix, Arizona for several years.
0: So it was uh, actually it was uh, the, the whole concept of, of practice and, and and you know it from being an attorney as well. Right. It's, it's all about the the people. Right. And so I was, you know, as a private practitioner, you do you do it all, whether it's criminal defense or it's corporate defense. Uh, and so I wanted to be on the other side of that equation, uh, and that's what drove me to to leave private practice and, and join the FBI. I wanted to be at the tip of the spear, actually fighting and, and investigating those cases um, as opposed to defending them.
1: Yeah. And you were with the FBI for over 20 years. Can you tell us a little bit of unclassified information about what you were working on there?
0: So yeah, actually, 22 years with the bureau. Um, I joined in uh, in the mid in mid '90s, so 1996, and I worked it all, Amber. I uh, came and worked in Colombian, Mexican, like hardcore cartel cases. Um, I'm a pilot as well, so I flew operations for the FBI for a number of years throughout my career. Um, I worked counterterrorism, counterintelligence. Um, I was the guy actually on September twelfth of two thousand one who was asked to create the the no fly list and the the terrorist watch list, which I did as well. Uh, and then moved throughout my career, working you know just about everything, including cyber. Created a cyber task force in Cincinnati division, um, and then was just very 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 grateful to be able to come home um, as the special agent in charge of of the of the Phoenix office to to be the the lead federal officer, you know, the lead federal agent um, in my hometown was uh, an amazing experience.
1: You have quite a storied career then. That is uh, that is involvement in a lot of major, major issues. I'm curious, why cybersecurity? Why is that where you landed ultimately um, after leaving the service?
0: So, you know, it's it's a collection of all of these various um, you know, roles that I held at the FBI. So think about it this way. I started working cyber when the Bureau really started to understand in 2002, 2003, that cyber was going to be a part of everything that we did, whether it was bank robbery or true cyber or counterterrorism, cyber had a role. And so I I started the task force and, and started to work it at its, its initial stages, continued to work it even through my SAC time, but then was brought back by Director Mueller to run HR. So I was the Chief Human capital Officer. and And that was not only about being the head of HR, but it was about designing and delivering the FBI's electronic hr system, which i which I did to the global FBI footprint. And then you know the then Director at the time, Director Comey, you know saw me designing and delivering the electronic HR system. And then promoted me to the executive assistant director of, of global IT and the FBI's you know chief information officer or CIO. So, to me, the 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 cybersecurity world was that natural progression of, I'm the guy in a, in the room with a board of directors or an audit committee or a C-suite where I look at, I can ask you questions from a legal perspective. I can ask you questions and think about things from the actual boots on the ground, cyber agent perspective, because I did that as well. Uh, but also then transitioning to the executive level of, look, I've, I've been a sitting CIO, I've designed and delivered uh, technology to a global organization. So I'm, I'm just a guy in the room that thinks about it differently, and that's why cybersecurity was the place.
1: It's interesting. So I came across your work, James, with OPTIV through South by Southwest. I was watching the session that your CEO, Kevin Lynch, did there. And Kevin was speaking with a retired military officer who mentioned that there are five kind of domains that the military thinks in terms of land, sea air space and cybersecurity. And so to think of that as its own sort of domain. I mean, I can't imagine the um the shift in thinking that's occurred since, you know, 2002, 2003 you mentioned um when that started to be such a massive area. Can you talk about um just that shift in our culture and how the, how big this really has become as an issue and also a, a domain? <laughs>
0: Yeah so so he's absolutely right. The general is absolutely right. It has it it needs to be its own domain. Uh I mean I've worked I've worked cases I you know actually worked uh you name it every type of case in, including um you know what what, I, what we would call like kinetic cases, right? Where I'm actually you know arresting bad guys, not necessarily doing cyber stuff um you know but actually kicking in doors and putting handcuffs on people and and interviewing these guys. And so the whole concept of of not only gaining gaining the intelligence and working the case from a cyber aspect and a physical, right? interviewing people, but you have this whole world out there, and especially now with the dark web, which has created its own marketplace for all types of malware and ransomware. So you have to you have to think three-dimensionally when you're looking at at the world now. It's not just the the kinetic aspect of, Either you know the you know we're talking about the you know the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's both both a kinetic aspect to that, right? The actual boots on the ground war, but there's a whole cyber warfare piece uh, that you know preceded the actual invasion and continues to this day. Uh, And so you have to think three dimensionally and including, and I would say almost another quasi dimension, which is the cyber and satellite or cyber and space piece. Right Because space can be both kinetic, but space can also be cyber. Uh, and so I think cyber goes across all of them.
1: I'm glad that you brought up Russia and Ukraine. That's something that is in the news, obviously, a lot. And in in the banking world in particular, um, there's a question about whether we've seen all that we're going to see in terms of attacks and cybersecurity attacks, or whether we need to be kind of bracing ourselves for a flood of cyber attacks that we can come to expect. So what do you think about that, James, in terms of, of whether we've seen it all or whether we should still be bracing ourselves, what kinds of attacks we can expect? Expect to see um, out of this uh, conflict.
0: Yeah, so we have not, we haven't seen the. Uh, I don't think we've seen anything about what we're going to see. I, I truly believe that as the as the sanctions. Uh, that all of the, you know, the Western countries and and actually, you know, most of the world has imposed upon Russia. As those sanctions start to really take hold of their economy, you're going to see a number of different things, right? So certainly cyber attacks against our banking and our critical infrastructure will increase, one, as a response by Russia to the fact that we're leveling all of these sanctions. But you got to think about the, the, the economic aspect of this, as those sanctions sink in, right, you're you're choking off the Russian economy. And one way that, I mean, I've worked the, the Chinese, the Russian, the North Koreans, you know, I've worked Iran as far as cyber cases. And if you take Iran and North Korea as a great example, there, the number of cases and the number of, of ransomware and the attacks increase during, you know, what I would call geopolitical crisis situations, because they're trying to fund their regime. Right. And so they're using ransomware and they're using all of these tools, you know, to to gain money, you know, in Bitcoin to actually, you know, fund their regime. So I think Russia is going to turn to that same kind of tactic to be able to utilize these kind of attacks to help fund the war.
1: So I I want to talk and dig a little bit deeper about specifically how that impacts the banking sector. I think that when we think about large scale attacks on critical infrastructure, we often think about the water supply system or the grid, Um, but banking is, you know, and access to the financial system is imperative. And so could you talk a little bit about how we think about those structural systemic risks around banking in particular, um, and what about that area is special or unique when it comes to cybersecurity?
0: Yeah, so it's it's, that's a great question because of the whole concept of systemic risk and the the connections, especially third party connections. So you got to think about this in in terms of both uh, upstream and downstream, right? So banking is connected to certainly not only there are platforms out there that that allow, you know, Swift and others that allow the actual banking transactions to occur. But but the threat actors out there, including Russia and 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 China, are are absolutely adept at utilizing third parties that are that have connectivity to those banks. So every every bank, every financial institution has has vendors, right? So even you know something as simple as you know who takes care of their uh, you know their HVAC systems, right? Go back to the Target breach, right? Where threat actors got into the Target payment system through the HVAC system. Right, connect connections that because they wanted it monitored worldwide, um, across all their stores. So, looking at the third party piece of this, and who are who are those vendors, both upstream and downstream, um, the whole concept of supply chain attacks, uh, which is you know what I think we're seeing now. Um, I had I was interviewed a number of different times in the last couple of months about uh, about this, and and the whole concept of utilizing Russia. As an example of their solar winds attack, right? So that's a perfect uh, third party type of attack where they've gone in and and they were actually after specific government organizations, but they got to them through the solar wind software.
1: That is unsettling to say the least. I think that bankers are, already very wary of connections to third parties, um, whether that's a critical vendor or or something ancillary. I know that there are um, a lot of a lot of uh, solutions out there to help them monitor their systems. But something that caught my attention about the talk that your CEO gave at South by Southwest was when he was talking about solutions, um, he was really putting forth this idea of collective defense. And I'm wondering if you can touch on that and educate our audience about what he sees in terms of folks working together to, to stop some of these threats.
0: Yeah. So. So the whole concept of collective defense is is really this cross company, cross sector. Uh, it is it is information sharing. You know, during my time at the FBI, we, you know, we created a number of public private partnerships. Uh, you know, information sharing. You know, analysis centers, ISACs. Uh, we also did a, a number of organizations like InfraGuard and others. And you know, I gotta tell you the the whole concept of being able to share intelligence, share exactly where the threat actors are coming in, what tactics and techniques and procedures are there are they using? Uh, historically, and again, I've worked these cases for a lot of years. Historically, victims didn't want to talk to the FBI, right? Nobody wants to to admit the fact that they've been a victim. But the critical failure in that is that if if the Bureau was able to collectively get all of those tactics and those procedures and how the threat actors were actually entering systems and moving laterally and and all of the literally the tools that they're using, we're able to share that across an entire industry. You know, that, that is really powerful intelligence that allows, you know, other aspects of, let's say the financial services industry to not become a victim because they've been able to use that collective intelligence to to basically shore up and, and plug the gaps and plug the holes. And so it is uh, what they call FSISAC, which is the financial services um, version of this, this Financial Services Information Sharing and Analysis Center that's been around since the 90s. Really, really critical um, for the financial services groups, um, and it's been wildly successful. Um, and in, and in increasingly now, uh, because of the threat from uh, Russian cyber attacks um, against our financial services groups.
1: That is great to know. So FSI SAC um, has been around for a long time. Something that people should definitely check out. It sounds yes. like. Uh, wanted to touch on some of the other kind of remediation efforts out there when we're looking at things like human error or just poor hygiene, right? When we're talking about cybersecurity, I saw a headline recently that the recent TransUnion leak, um, I think it was in South America, was because they had a password that was password, right? I mean, this is still an issue Fishing is still an issue. Um, can you talk a little bit about the role of innovation and in technology and how that might help us move past some of these human issues? Or are we just stuck here and I will always have a sticky note hidden somewhere with all my passwords on it?
0: <laughs> no, it's it, it's a great question. And it is it is the people part of people, process, and technology, um, and, and you know, those are the three things that we usually talk about in the cyber world. About you know, you need to focus on on those three like big areas. Um, but it's also something that that I drill down a little further when I'm with boards of directors or audit committees, right? Because it's also about data ecosystems and attack surface. So if you can kind of think about the the pull, people, process, and technology. And then, kind of morph it to you know, data is everything, right? And and there are now technologies coming out which will help us, um, you know, do better, you know, access management and privileged access management because that's what this is really all about, right? Um, one of the one of the bigger attack vectors against banks and credit unions are web attacks and password attacks, right? They're most forty I percent mean, or higher um, are are password attacks. So you know, as far as what to do about that, I think you're starting to see some technologies come out that will be helpful. I mean, there are things like password vaults now that are software um, packages that can help you try to you know keep all your passwords that are you know that's in an an encrypted file. Uh, sometimes that works. Some are good. Some are bad. Um, I've also seen it from the HR standpoint, right? So let's go back to the people part of this. Um, I've also seen, you know, what I call serial clickers, right—the ones that continuously fail the phishing tests and, and the phishing uh, tests that go on in in an organization, right? Actually taking HR actions against the serial clickers right, because they just they either don't pay attention or they just can't understand it. Um, and so I think there has to be a, a collection of all of this, right? There needs to be better technology in this area to, to help us out. Um, but there also needs to be, you know, that people part of the accountability aspect. Um, I mean, and I, I can't tell you how many cases I've worked were literally, right, the password, you know, to get into privileged accounts was password and it wasn't capitalized. I mean, it's 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 frightening that that's still a situation today.
1: It is. And for a bank leader, I think that it's all probably a little bit overwhelming. We're talking about all of these new lenses that you have to be thinking about holistically, whether it's kinetic or digital, the uh, the people, processes, and technology, as you mentioned, so many different variables. What are some of the best practices that you would share with our audience of bank and fintech leaders?
0: So yeah, I think the I think one of the best things to to think about is it's the whole preparedness piece, right? So it's not it's one building resilient networks and, and thinking about security, not trying to bolt it on at the end or afterwards, right? Um, because that's where most of the problems come in is that we've we're now bolting on technology, bolting on security, uh, to to these situations. But the resilience piece and the and the preparedness piece, right? Um, I've worked a ton of cases, including you know the the Nodetty attack in 2017, where you had organizations that were literally going down because of the Nodetty attack uh, ransomware, because and they couldn't they couldn't communicate with their with any of their their businesses or any of their employees, because guess what their their communications package was all IP based, and it got locked down with everything else. Right, so so best practices are are really thinking about putting yourself in the in the situation where one you've you you've tried this, you've tested it, you've war gamed it, right? You actually have you know a command center that you've designated at your uh, at your organization, right? Some conference room where when it happens, because it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. When it happens, that's your war room, right? You know who's in charge. You know who's the decision maker. You've got a a secondary line of secure communications, right? So you're not you know actually trying to communicate with your uh, you know with your employees or your business partners on you know WhatsApp using your cell phone. you know and and assume, uh, especially in this age of what you know hermetic wipers and you know different types of ransomware and different types of malware, which is designed to destruct you've got to have you've got to have multiple backups. Uh, those backups need to be offline yeah, and you need to you need to assume that the, uh, the adversary is, is, is constantly I and mean, they, they call them advanced persistent threats for a reason, right? There' are botnets out there that are just constantly banging away at your endpoints, you know, trying to t- trying to inject malware, trying to do DDoS attacks, um, which are, are two of the highest numbers of the type of attacks.
1: So, I I mean, I'm just trying to figure out how to tackle this from a bank's perspective. There's an immense amount of preparedness. I love the idea of wargaming it out, having those backups. There's some technology that goes into this. Um, But we also have 3 million unfilled jobs in the cybersecurity space. So where does that fit into the calculation of how not just banks, but but all corporations really should be thinking about um, how to protect themselves going forward?
0: yeah the 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 lack of personnel, right? The lack of of actually people to do the job is is, is actually just killing us right you know there's there's so only so much technology and tools that are you can use out there you got to have the people to actually configure it right to run it to integrate it you know into your ecosystem to so that it's it doesn't create more gaps i mean there's tons of tools but if you misconfigure one of those tools it is so easy to infiltrate a system just from that misconfiguration Ah, uh, so it it it's it's really imperative to to not only make sure that whatever resources you have, and and in a banking context, this is really about uh, certainly the large banks, right? the The big institutional investors and the large uh, banking institutions have vast uh, vast numbers of people, right? they and but they pay a lot of money for you know that high level of of engagement. What I fear for is some of the smaller banks. Because they don't have, they certainly don't have the money to be able to to have extraordinarily large and well-funded IT shops. Um, Some of them, you know, utilize third-party services in order to to do their monitoring and to do some of the uh, the tools assessment and integration. And while that's fine. Uh, and, you know, certainly Optiv is one of those organizations that will do that. Um, you know, you you want to be able to to shore that up and be the right solution. You know, not just any tool, right? But be that right solution for that ecosystem in that smaller, medium to size bank. Um, and so, it, it is really imperative to have those partners, uh, especially for the small to medium sized banks, because because guess what? Let's go back to our original conversation about systemic risk, right? The small and medium sized banks are all connected to, right, the big system that includes the larger banks and institutions.
1: That is a great way to think about that interconnectedness. And, And one last thing I want to touch on here before we wrap it up is cybersecurity insurance. I think that there might be some misunderstanding out there about what that covers, how it actually helps in a practical sense. So can you just talk about that landscape a little bit for us?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, cyber insurance is is one of those critical tools, right? It is not the only tool. You certainly should not be, you know, basing your, um, you know, your entire strategy, your cyber risk or cyber security strategy, based on the fact that you have, um, you know, cyber insurance. It is it is a tool, uh, certainly because of the last few years, especially the last two to three years with ransomware attacks you now have a ton of of victims out there that have had payouts from their cyber insurance. So that market is constricting. Um that market is certainly becoming, you know, more difficult and there's going to be there are higher standards that you have to meet in order to make sure that you can actually get coverage in the first place. And so the whole concept that that you said earlier Amber about cyber hygiene and and what, you know, when you and I talked about what that ecosystem looks like, Well, there are cyber insurers out there right now that if you don't meet a certain threshold of cyber hygiene and you don't have the assessments to know where your gaps and vulnerabilities are and you don't have cyber resilience and response plans that you practice, you may not get cyber insurance. Um, And so, you know, with with the constricting market and and also the ability and, and it's it's good and bad, right? It's really good that cyber insurers are looking at this. And saying, "Hey, we'll we'll give you insurance. We'll give you coverage, but you're going to do the following things in order to make certain that your systems are as safe as they can be. That ups that cyber hygiene.
1: Definitely. So, James, uh, this is all as I mentioned before a pretty daunting landscape. I'm curious if you can leave us off with any bright spots that you can see in this landscape going forward
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is I, I know it sounds doom and gloom and and I've worked a, a ton of these cases and and it's it's complex. I mean, I know it's hard. Uh, most most companies, uh, especially some of the small and medium sized ones, boards look at me and go, right, this is in the too hard pile, right? So where do we start? Um, but I, I, I got to tell you, in the last you know, probably five years since I've left the Bureau, there's been a, a certainly an increase in the, the knowledge base out there. People are paying attention to it. People are really, companies are really paying attention to it after, you know, so, uh, attacks like the Colonial uh, Pipeline attack and the JBS attack, right? Those hit. Those hit sectors where you know people couldn't get gas and couldn't get food, right? So the the knowledge of of what's out there is is really increasing the conversation. Certainly, this you know, unfortunately, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine has really upped the conversation um, with boards and and with the C-suite about you know, where are we? Are we secure? What are we doing to be secure? Um, and I think there's also some some uh, the SEC rules that are being proposed right now um, about uh, when the company should uh, disclose the fact that they've been um, a victim of a breach, but also the the board education piece as well. You know, SEC is going to start requiring boards of directors and C-suites to have a certain level of cyber acuity and have you know, individuals like myself on boards, you know, so that we can we can really understand the the cyber impacts to that business. I think all these things, right, are are driving us in the right direction.
1: James Trugle, it was so great to talk to you. Where can people find you?
0: Uh, you can find me at uh, Optive Security or Optive Inc. Uh, I'm a vice president with our uh, cyber risk strategy and board relations program.
1: All right, thank you so much.
2: Welcome to The Futurists, where your hosts Brett King and Robert Tersek interviewed the world's foremost super forecasters, thought leaders, technologists, entrepreneurs, and futurists building the world of tomorrow. Our guests include Kevin J. Anderson, a New York Times bestselling author that worked on the Oscar-winning Dune movie, Andrew Hessel, synthetic biologist and author of The Genesis Machine and Dr. Harry Clore of Beyond Imagination, the company behind robot avatars like Bayomni, one of the most sophisticated general purpose humanoid robots on the planet. Together, we will explore how our world will be radically changed over the coming years. AI bioscience and gene therapy, renewable energy and battery technology, food and agriculture advances, computing, the metaverse, the space industry, crypto, resource management, supply chain automation, and climate change will all reshape our world over the next 100 years. Join us on The Futurist to explore what's coming next, and we will see you in the future.
1: One of the sessions that stuck with me the most at South by Southwest was presented by our next guest, Lisa Warner. Now, admittedly, I may have enjoyed the session because it gave me an opportunity to relax and rest through some breathing exercises amid what was a very hectic South by conference. But what was more interesting about this session, particularly for you listeners, was the lens that Lisa and her colleague from AMP Creative applied to the issue of cybersecurity training. Lisa is the president of AMP Creative, a creative agency in the learning and development space that's created learning campaigns for a broad range of corporations and topics. In her session at South By titled Mindfulness, The Cornerstone of the Human Firewall, Lisa applied her mindfulness training to help people avoid falling prey to phishing scams. In this episode, we'll explore the five ways cybercriminals hack your brain, full-body decision making, a simple method for avoiding cyber traps, and much more. All right, I am so excited to be joined today by Lisa Warner. Lisa is the president of AMP Creative, and I was super fortunate to get to catch her discussion at South by Southwest last month in Austin. Um, Lisa actually lives in Dallas, I believe. How are things in Dallas today, Lisa?
3: They're fantastic. I'm right in between the two biggies, Dallas and Fort Worth, and uh, it's a beautiful day here.
1: Awesome. Glad, glad you could join us. So um, this, this episode is going to be a little bit different, which makes me very excited. I love to kind of shake up the format, um, but we usually kind of dive right into questions. But at your talk at South by Southwest, I was pretty mesmerized because you guys started with a story or a little scenario. So I'm wondering if you can just dive right into that for us
3: sure i would love to i you know it's great to start with stories because stories have so much human impact and especially when we're talking about cybersecurity and mindfulness and body wisdom so i want you to take a deep breath just in through the nose out through the mouth get settled in your seat for just a little bit to to hear this story so imagine that it's friday just like it is today and it's way past your missed lunchtime, and you've been in meetings literally all day long. You're in yet another Zoom meeting, and the headache that you have, um, potentially maybe from a networking mixer that was last night, is really not making your day go much faster. So your stomach is grumbling, and you're waiting for this final meeting, which quite honestly probably could have been an email to end. (laughs) Lisa,
1: except for the fact that I'm actually really enjoying this meeting, you've got me pegged, a headache and all. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I love it. Yeah, no, we have totally all been here. So you're, you know, you're waiting for this thing to wrap so that you can grab a bite to eat before the end of your day. And you're a little bit maybe extra stressed today because, well, maybe tonight is the night that you're going to, um, let's say, entertain not not the dreaded, the much-loved, but sometimes maybe the much-feared in-laws. So the in-laws are coming tonight, and you're getting text messages from your significant other, and I don't know if you can be too loud on text messages, but I kind of think you can. And you realize that you have sort of forgot about the dinner. You didn't take the roast out of the freezer. You didn't pick up the wine. You didn't do anything you really needed to do, but it's totally okay. You're, you know, you're just gonna, you're gonna focus on the meeting and then you're gonna get out of the meeting and you're gonna grab something to eat. You can go by the store. You got to pick up soccer snacks for the kids practice tomorrow anyway um you know you'll get wine you'll get something to eat everything is going to be just fine and as all of this is going through your mind and you're trying to pay attention to the meeting a little notification pops up on the corner of your screen from outlook and there is a screaming subject line from your vp that says urgent please respond as soon as possible well you, you can't help yourself. You click open the email while you're in the meeting. You Absolutely. Know, may, <laughs> maybe you turn your phone over to just like, you know, put that on pause, you know, for a little bit. But there's a lot of communication coming at you. But this is urgent. So you click on, um, open the email and you see that your VP is explaining that they're currently in this big meeting with some clients, right? And they want you to, they want to do something nice for the clients because the VP Forgot that they have another commitment and they're not going to be able to take the clients out to dinner. How embarrassing! You know, you want your company to look good, so of course you're going to try to help them out. So they're in a meeting and they, you know, they don't have access to most most of their stuff, and they really, really need you to um, send them your phone number just as soon as possible so that they can text you and tell you what you need to do. <sighs> I mean, are you kidding me? Okay, whatever you know, your your head is pounding and you're thinking right now about the Tylenol that's in your desk, in the other room, if you could just get over there, but you're just like, fine, I'll take care of this. So in a split second decision, you decide to respond to the email and you send your cell number over the email. I mean, no harm in that, right? It's your cell number, most people have your cell number anyway. And then the text messages start to come like, immediately they start to come and you figure out that your VP wants you to essentially get some gift cards for dinners for these clients since, you know, they can't take them out to dinner tonight. How thoughtful, right? Well, maybe you don't always think that about your VP, but whatever. He needs you to get a dozen gift cards. They're about $200 a pop. And he's going to make it super, super easy for you to do this because he's going to send you a link. All you have to do is click this link on your cell phone, download these gift cards, and then send him pictures of the gift cards with the specific numbers on them so that he can forward them to the client. Easy peasy. You'll get through this task. The meeting's almost ended. You can grab your Tylenol, grab something to eat, get to the store, and all will be well. Right? Right? I th- I think so. so. What, do you do? <laughs> what do you do next? I mean, I know how the
1: story ends. So I'm probably <laughs> the unfair person to ask, but I think I think a lot of people would just do it. Like it's weird, but you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean there, you know, your brain's
3: pretty fractured, right? There's a lot of information coming at you. You want to do a good job. And you're trying to take care of everybody's needs, you know, your VP with his screaming urgent subject lines, the people that you're in the meeting with, you know, the family. And so for most people, the answer would be that, yeah, they mean, you know, they would just go ahead and complete the task unless I'm going to say unless they were trained a little bit differently when it comes to email and um text phishing schemes like this one. But I'm gonna tell you, even with the best cybersecurity training, the smartest people can be tricked. So, as I was saying before, I'm Lisa Warner, and I'm super, super passionate about making this connection between everyday problems, big and small, and solutions that are derived from the practice of mindfulness because in addition to my role at AMP Creative, I'm also a certified mindfulness meditation teacher. So
1: you're a mindfulness coach, you're the president of a creative firm, which which let's talk for just a second about that. What does AMP Creative actually do, Lisa?
3: So we're a creative agency and we occupy the learning and development space. We were, you know, our background was in video production and over time we turned sort of the you know the great corporate communications video and training videos into larger learning campaigns and mixed great video and storytelling with e-learning and workshops and entire learning campaigns that have marketing around it so we work largely with enterprise corporations to address their learning and training needs
1: okay that's that makes sense that's really interesting because I was trying to connect the dots between that and phishing and why that was the topic of your Southwest talk. But it's really interesting because this cybersecurity training uh, email phishing space is something that banks, fintechs, a lot of folks in our audience spend a lot of money on actually every year, you know, kind of doing these like modular training things or having people like read a lot of stuff off of a screen. And it's, it strikes me that that is a very different learning experience than um, your session at Southwest, the things that we're talking about today, and taking into it, uh, into consideration the human elements of what's required to become, as as your talk is titled, a human firewall.
3: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, there are great training resources out there, but they're not necessarily experiential learning, you know, resources that we can use. And we need to understand what phishing campaigns look like. We need to understand the psychology behind them and be able to identify all the, the cues and clues. But what we also need to know is what the experience of being the victim of a cyber phishing attack is like. And that's where you bring in the mindfulness it's that in the moment experience that we have as individuals because the great thing that we have in common is not only our you know love and ability to learn from stories but we all have the same brain structure and you know we have the the, the same bodies and the same responses that react to these kinds of stressors so if you can learn about that you know then you actually can use the feedback from your own body to further inform what is going on and to slow down the process so that we don't make these snap judgments that can become very, very costly. Um, And that's kind of how we got to this space. My um, background in mindfulness and leading meditations is an extremely um, experiential focused practice. And... At our company, we deal with tons of very sensitive data, very similar to banks and, and finance. And so we have high standards in terms of our own internal cybersecurity. We have an ISO security um, certification that we go through every year um, because we're handling sensitive data, especially when you think about sensitive data around human resources and LD. Um, so yeah, we're held to a very high standard in terms of just the way we deal with data.
1: L&D, what does that stand for?
3: Learning and development.
1: Okay, got it, got it. Yeah,
3: for sure. So you think about all the compliance learning and development as well as just professional development. So you're going to have everything from sexual harassment or, you know, anti-money laundering, you know, anything like that, as well as career pathing and coaching for leadership
1: great. And of course, cybersecurity. So I want to dive into the five ways that you talked about at South by how criminals hack your brain. How how do they do it? How do they get me to click on that email or send my phone number?
3: (laughs) You bet. So I think pretexting and masquerading, you know, they're basically the same thing, are the things that um, you're going to recognize just like immediately right off the bat. So The number one method of hacking our brains is pretending to be someone else, and it's generally pretending to be a person um, that the target of the phishing attack knows or would expect to hear from. So this could be in the form of a text or an email that appears to be from your boss, like that VP we were talking about, or colleague, or relative, or from a known institution like the IRS or FedEx. In fact, um, according to a 2021 Symantec Enterprise report, 96% of all phishing attacks are through email. So when you get that email and it says it's from your boss, the email is your boss's email, it appears to be. So what your brain does is trick you to automatically assume it's real. Even if there's a slight inconsistency in the email, like maybe there's a creative um, swap of a letter um, or a number for a letter that you just don't instantly see, your brain tricks you into thinking that this is real. You assume that it's real, you jump directly into the meat of the message and you respond to directions quickly rather than slowing down to examine whether the sender is authentic. It's like if you receive, you know, an email from from your mom. You know, maybe your mom's if if they're elderly and their circumstances um, are a little bit more dire. Instead of like really closely examining to make sure that's your your mom, your dad's email, you just jump in out of part of your natural tendency to want to take care of others or if it's your boss or another authority figure, your natural tendency to want to do a good job.
1: Well, and also my mom has like 17 different email addresses and it very well could be one of those random emails.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. But I mean, you know, you just say, you know, mom, children, spouse, you know, dear friend, these are all things that, you know, hit us on the heart level. And so when we see a message like that, rather than responding you know from that cognitive part of our brains we respond immediately from the emotional part of our brains and we're going to talk about that a little bit more later now the thing that they tend to mix with pretexting or masquerading and we talked a little bit about that uh, about this is authority influence so whether we like it or not the truth is that if we think we're getting a message from an authority figure or it could be you know something like the IRS even if they're asking us to do something that we find objectionable we generally respond and do the thing that we're being asked to do it's it it's just part of our conditioning you know it's it's part of what makes society work in that we respond to authority if a police officer asks you to stop generally you're going to stop but this doesn't work so well in the digital world because you really don't know who's behind that authority title or whoever is saying that they are the authority figure you actually don't know that they are so if you have somebody masquerading as an authority figure and then you mix in another element that you know is part of the psychology of email phishing which is urgency it becomes really really impactful. So, in about 70% of the email phishing schemes that, you know, people studied, they found that urgency was included in the email. So, if you remember our little scenario at the beginning of our talk, uh, you know, it this was an urgent message. You have to do this as soon as possible. This is also a typical sales technique. You know? I mean, how many times have you responded to something because the sale was about to end? <laughs> don't miss out on the the final days.
1: Yeah, don't also, um, we're about to run out of room in the hotel block, so you better get your hotel. Uh, <laughs> action needed, <laughs> that's another one. Absolutely, we,
3: we respond to urgency, I agree. So so they throw that little bit of urgency in there to, you know, is, as another brain hack. Um, the other thing that they might do is basically hijack your sense of awareness to focus on a very specific thing to mask what's going on in the total situation. So I'm sure you've seen um, videos out there that are called awareness tests. There's a really famous one from around 2008 from uh, the Transport for London folks. They did this amazing video in which they ask you, to count the number of times that a soccer ball is passed around, um, you know, within a group of people. Okay. And you can focus on that video and count the number of times the soccer ball is passed around. I mean, it's fascinating because everybody wants to get the number right. You know, you want to. Yeah, I'm a smart person. I can count. I can do this. And what's happening in the background, and it's not even, you know, very masked in this video is that there's someone in a bear suit who's moonwalking backwards through the video. Well, as you're focusing on counting the number of times that this ball is passed around, you totally miss the moonwalking bear. Like mm-hmm. I mean, how do you miss a moonwalking bear, right? Yeah, what do, you do. Because our brains were tricked, you know, by the person giving us an instruction to be aware of something other than the total context. Um, you know, another thing that I alluded to earlier is just the way our brains tend to um, do something called chunking or typoglycemia. Um, your brain is wired to make sense of the world, which is a great blessing, right? You know we we need to be able to make sense of things. But we can make sense of things often that are actually nonsensical, that can track that can trick our brains.. Um, so I'm sure you've seen examples of, you know, paragraphs that are full of misspellings and there are words missing, and it, it might look like gibberish if you were examining it very closely, but most people can be challenged to read what, you know, could look like gibberish and actually make sense of it. Yeah, or of you, brain, can read,
1: yeah you can read like a word without any of the vowels in it. You still just know oh, what
3: the word is automatically. And this kind of goes back to the beginning of what we, you know, did at the start of this talk, in that I told you a story. Our brains, our hearts, we're wired for stories. And when you're wired for stories, you make sense of things that don't make sense. So that would be, you know, the top ways in which email or text phishing or just like any phishing scheme um, is used. And so how how could I help them prevent this from happening? How could I help my own IT department and everybody within the company? And that's really the genesis of this whole talk about augmenting your cybersecurity training with mindfulness. Um, Because there's some fantastic cybersecurity training out there and companies pour money, I mean, pour money into it because cybersecurity is a big deal right now. But none of that training talks about listening to our bodies. None of that training talks about the parts of the brain and how your limbic system can be stimulated and tripped. Um, Nobody talks about the experience of what it is like to be a human who is the victim of a cybercrime as that cybercrime is setting up and about to take place. So I have just a few things that I would love to share if we have time. Little bitty um, mindfulness practices that people can actually employ and it can help them through those in the moment experiences when they're being the victim of a cyber crime. Great. All right, so the first practice is so, so easy. It's my favorite practice of all. It's just called the stop practice. So stop is an acronym that's really easy to remember. The S stands for stop. Just stop doing whatever you're doing. Just like in our story, I I just turned my camera off for a minute. I said, I need to take a pause, stop. The next thing is to take a deep breath in through your nose and out through the mouth. The O stands for observe what's going on around you and what's going on inside your body what are you literally feeling? And then after that, the P is for proceed. So I want to talk a little bit about what this take a deep breath in through the nose and out through the mouth is about. Like, like why do you need to do it that way? What What does that mean? Yeah, as an allergy sufferer, it's kind of difficult. <laughs> I, I feel you. Yes, my allergies have really been acting up to date. So it might be a little bit more difficult if your nose is topped up, but i but you can still do it. When you take a deep breath in through your nose, just, and then release all the way out through the mouth. I mean, really just empty out the lungs, empty out the belly. What you're telling your brain to do is calm down. It's, It's really simple. That breath in through the nose and out through the mouth stimulates your parasympathetic nervous system. So all of those stress hormones that were rushing through your body as your limbic system was brought online, get calmed down by taking that deep breath in through the nose with that long exhale through the mouth. And you basically reverse the system. You've told your brain just by breathing to calm down. And then when you calm down, What you did was bring that cognitive brain back online so that you can reassess the situation. And this is something that's so easy to do, you can do it anywhere. You can be standing in line at the grocery store. And if there's a particularly annoying clerk or customer, (laughs) you can just take a deep breath in through the nose, then out through the mouth. I do it um, every time I go to a stoplight when I'm driving, I do a stop practice. Because driving can be really stressful, right? Yeah, and
1: yeah, and you can get in your head and get to thinking about what you're, where you're about to go, or what you have to do tomorrow, um, and Absolutely. I think that. Especially as knowledge workers, it's interesting to be talking to you, Lisa, about the body and and being aware of how you're physically feeling, because I think that so much of our training looks a lot like our day-to-day work, right? We're staring at a computer screen. We're reading a lot of text. So this approach is really interesting because it really does just break things up, reverse those patterns and ruts that we get stuck in, and help you to really observe
3: much more fully what's going on around you. Yeah, I I like to do it before I send an email. So I do a little stop practice. Yeah, I wish people stopped before they sent emails and thought about what they're about to send. So (laughs) yeah. So I'll compose my email, my answer, whatever, and then I do a stop practice. It's just a deep breath in through the nose, then out through the mouth. I reread read the email and then I hit send. Or sometimes I say, huh, I don't like the way that sounds. You know, let, let me change it. But I've just given my myself that, that little pause button, calmed my brain down because how many times have we responded to an email where we felt maybe someone was curt or a little bit snippy or we were frustrated and we're responding from the amygdala mm. and can cause ourselves a whole lot more problems than we ever anticipated by doing that. So that's kind of basically, you know, the the gist of what... I have learned, you know, when it comes to applying mindfulness to preventing cybersecurity. Um, I think these are pretty simple techniques that can be taught to just about any team. You could teach them to your kids, you could teach them to your parents, friends. I mostly love
1: that it's something that's new and fresh in the realm of training. And so whether it's cybersecurity or compliance, as you mentioned earlier, um, would love to help our listeners find you guys so that they can you know, potentially engage you to create other really experiential involved um,
3: training experiences. So Lisa, where can people find you? Well, you can find us at ampcreative.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, Lisa Warner, and I would love to have a conversation, you know, as well as doing full training campaigns, you know, through AMP. I also um, work just as a mindfulness consultant, love coming into companies, talking about starting a mindfulness program. Um, you know, they could be started really simply. And it's one of those things that like, even a little bit does a lot of good.
0: That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.